0: And Radio Derb is on the air. Welcome, listeners, from your constitutionally genial host, John Derbyshire, with a 40-minute scan of the week's news. Once again, I apologise for the sound quality of last week's podcast. I say again because I apologised in advance last week, having made some equipment changes. Yes, I needed a pop filter. And yes, I knew what a pop filter is. Been using one for years. I was assured, however, that my new recording gadget was of a miraculous new type that doesn't need a pop filter. So much for assurances. With that out of the way, let's proceed with Radio Derb number 929. Back at the beginning of the Biden administration, the very beginning, I'm looking here at my podcast, dated January 22nd, 2021 two days after the inauguration, I tried to float a meme. That's a thing I have tried many times to do, with no success. But hope springs eternal. The idea here, like an embarrassing number of my ideas, had its deep origins in the science fiction reading of my young teen years. I gave the necessary background in that January 2021 podcast. Back in the golden age of science fiction, 70-something years ago, there was a novel everyone read. Title, The World of Null A. It was about a future planet Earth that had moved on from simple Aristotelian logic to something more subtle. So the A there stood for Aristotle. Even then, in just the third day of Joe Biden's presidency, it was clear that the main motive principle of his administration was to undo everything Donald Trump had done. Trump had made this easy for him. Essentially none of Trump's accomplishments had been done legislative, Trump not having the faintest shadow of a clue how to impose his will on Congress, not even on a Congress controlled for two years by his own party. Almost everything Trump did, he did by, as Barack Obama was wont to say of his own governing style, by pen and phone, that is to say, by executive order. So, all Biden had to do was to rescind, revoke, cancel and annul Trump's executive orders. Biden had the further advantage, as I noted back then, that, quote from me, nothing he does will be contested by the critarchs of our woke federal judiciary, end quote. I was already able... Uh, This was, remember, just the third day of Biden's presidency. I was able to list four of these negations already accomplished. Biden had suspended all deportations of illegal aliens. He had cancelled the Remain in Mexico policy. He had revoked Trump's ban on federal agencies and contractors imposing anti-white critical race theory training on employees, and he had rescinded Trump's rule that if bureaucrats wanted to add a regulation to the 70,000 pages of the Federal Register, they first had to annul two existing rules. That was all I had noted on a quick trawl through the previous two days of news. I'm sure there were others I'd missed. Trumpism, I said, with a literary flourish, is evaporating like the morning mist in a valley. Then I summoned up the memory of that 1948 sci-fi novel and launched my meme, closing the segment with quote, "welcome to the world of null t". i made later attempts to propagate the null t meme. in august of that first biden year for example, my august 20th podcast i said, remember those pictures from back then in january of biden at his desk in the oval office working through a big stack of Trump's executive orders, cancelling every one? Do you think he paused to read them? Do you think that now and then he thought, wait a minute, this one makes sense. Maybe we should keep it. Nope, he just ploughed through cancelling every one. If Trump did it, it's bad. Cancel it. The World of Null T. Now three years and twelve days into Biden's presidency, we are well and truly in the world of null tea. The Brookings Institution regulatory tracker shows one hundred and sixteen changes to federal regulations for the period from november twenty twenty one to ...to November 2023. 39 of them are flagged as... ...Overturning Trump... ...Overturning and Replacing Trump... ...or Delaying Trump. That's 33.6%. Better than one in three. To be absolutely, impeccably, perfectly fair to Biden... ...I surmise that the tracker for years two and three of any administration taking over from the other party would show them annulling some of their predecessors' executive orders. But one in three? And I only started there in November 2021, when the first triumphant flush of nullification would have passed. Now, however things are going into reverse. We are seeing a trend to the nullification of Biden's nullifications of Trump orders. We are seeing null-T annulment. When the business with the Houthi bandits in Yemen shooting at our ships started up recently, we learned that Trump had designated the Houthis a terrorist organisation in January 2021. Actually, the day before Biden was sworn in. But then Joe Biden went null-T and he de-designated them on February 16th that year. Now, of course, they're back on the terrorist list. D-D-designated. Null-T annulled. Same with this week's news that UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, was involved in the Hamas border raid on Israel, October 7th. This was no surprise to anyone acquainted with the UN and its works. More on that later. But the Biden administration, along with at least nine other countries, have paused their funding of UNRWA, pending further investigation. The Trump administration had stopped funding UNRWA in August 2018. Biden restored funding in April 2021 on the null-T principle. Now funding is suspended again. Another DD designation, another null-T annulment, It's almost as if the World of Null Tea is an inhospitable place, even for the people who created it. I still like my World of Null Tea meme, but it never did get airborne. I guess 1948 sci-fi is just too esoteric for 2024 meme consumers. Eh, Spiro Sparrow. I had never heard of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity until this week, when a reference to them showed up on X. Going to their website, I see that they are a lobby for supply-side economics and Reaganite politics. In what follows, I shall refer to the Committee to Unleash Prosperity by its initials, C-U-P, CUP, just to save my breath. The first three names I see on the CUP website as principals of the outfit are Steve Forbes, the flat tax guy, Arthur Laffer, the Laffer Curve guy, You know, lowering tax rates increases tax revenues. And Steve Moore, who Donald Trump wanted to make a governor of the Federal Reserve until Congress squashed the idea. So, seasoned heavyweight economics gurus from the legacy conservative side of politics promoting free markets over government meddling. What's not to like? Nothing, far as I'm concerned, except the melancholy hum of nostalgia that I hear as I speak those names. I mean, is anybody listening to Cup? Anybody younger than me, that is. Well, yes, this week at any rate. That reference on X took me to a report that Cup put out last month. Title, Them Versus... US, with the US spelled as U period, S period. Get it? The report concerns a survey, or it's actually two surveys, but they discuss them as one, a survey that CUP commissioned last September from highly respectable polling firms. Quote from the executive summary, quote, The survey is a first-of-its-kind look at the views of the American elite, defined as people having at least one postgraduate degree, earning at least $150,000 annually, and living in high-population-density areas, more than 10,000 people per square mile in their zip code. And it compares them to what the average American thinks. The elites represent 1% of the US population but have an outsized voice on public policy in the United States with their views seeming somehow to dominate the national conversation, end quote. Reading the thing, I paused there to see how far I am from belonging to the elite, to that 1%. Far enough, for sure. I don't have a post-grad degree. I've never earned anything like 150000 And my zip code logs only 1,400 people to the square mile. So I am us, not them. Heck, I knew that, but I just wanted to be certain. OK, what does this survey tell us? Some highlights. Quote Only about 20% of all Americans say they believe their finances are getting better now. But among the elite, that number more than triples to 74% who say they are better off. And among the Ivy League school graduates, 88% say they are better off. End quote. Quote when Americans are asked if there is too much or too little freedom, elites are three times more likely to say that there is too much individual freedom in America than all Americans. Almost six out of ten of the graduates from elite colleges think there is too much freedom, end quote. Quote, An astonishing 77% of the elites including nearly 90% of the elites who graduated from the top universities, favour rationing of energy, gas and meat to combat climate change. Among all Americans, 63% oppose this policy. Quote. Quote, At most, half of Americans have a favourable opinion of lawyers, lobbyists, union leaders or journalists. However, almost 80% of the elites hold a favourable opinion of this group of professionals and nearly 90% of the elite college attendees do. As for members of Congress, 28% have a favourable opinion versus 67% of elites. Not a whole lot of surprises there, then. It's their world, we just live in it. It has, of course, always been thus. Way back in the 1840s, a character in one of Disraeli's novels observed that Queen Victoria reigned over not one nation, but two. Quote, Two nations between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy who are as ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts, and feelings as if they were dwellers in different zones, or inhabitants of different planets, who are formed by a different breeding, are fed by a different food, are ordered by different manners, and are not governed by the same laws." And, on the matter of rich folks' finances getting better while poor folks decline, a different person observed long before that, quote, "...for unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath." End quote. So, of course, there have always been rich and poor... Living somewhat different lives. The difference today is ideological, a deep difference of belief. Disraeli's two nations both loved their country and regarded foreigners as inferior. Both accepted their monarch as lawful ruler and Christianity as revealed truth. Both willingly supplied manpower to their nation's armed forces, albeit in different ranks. Today we have luxury beliefs to go with luxury lifestyles. Beliefs like the climate change cult and the psychic unity of mankind. I'll leave you to look up the ultimate origins of those cults for yourself. This C.U.P. report only says it knows how they are propagated in the present day. Quote, Just over half of the elites have a degree from one of the 12 elite universities. These schools play a crucial role in defining the elite culture and perspectives. End quote. I think that's right. It fortifies my belief that one precondition for the survival of our nation is the utter and total annihilation of the elite universities. I mentioned the psychic unity of mankind back there. The basic idea goes back to the middle 19th century. But some of the offshoot ideas that have come up in our own time would have astonished, and, I think, horrified, those earlier thinkers. The trans cult, for example, according to which, your sex is whatever you think it is, regardless of any biological features you might possess. The trans cult isn't merely silly, It's evil. We've had evidence of this recently in this terrible story from Montana. The story concerns a 14-year-old girl and her parents who appear to be loving and responsible. The girl had mental problems, saying she had attempted suicide and telling the parents she thought she might really be a boy. Child Protective Services got involved, bearing with them all the fakery and pseudoscience of modern psychiatry. After the suicide attempt story, the girl was hospitalised. Some authority figure in the hospital talked to her about interventions to change sex, including a double mastectomy. This just amplified the girl's mental disturbance. When she was back at home, CPS made follow-up visits recommending inpatient treatment for her sexual confusion at a mental health institution. When the parents were told that the only available institution was in Wyoming, they balked. Sex change procedures for minors, like hormone blockers and surgery, are illegal in Montana, but legal in Wyoming. CPS had reported the parents to the authorities as uncooperative and not concerned with their child's health. So, after the parents refused the transfer to Wyoming, Just ten minutes after, CPS showed up at the house with a police escort and took the girl away to Wyoming. Now she's a boy, or thinks she is. She is now living away from her parents in a Montana CPS residential care institution for young people. Governor Greg Gianforte of Montana Issued a statement this week saying, inter alia, quote, Our administration will continue to advance policies that strengthen our families and protect Montana kids. The main point of the statement, however, seems to be to dump responsibility for this horror on his lieutenant governor, Kristen Juras. And further quote I have asked the Lieutenant Governor to continue monitoring the case as it progresses. Governor Gianforti and Lieutenant Governor Juras hold graduate degrees, but not from elite universities. Gianforti has a net worth of at least nine digits. I can't find numbers for Kristen Juras, but she's had a long career as a lawyer and law lecturer, so I doubt she has to clip coupons much. I can't find population density numbers for their zip codes. Oh, did I mention they're both Republicans? Early last Sunday morning, three of our service members were killed and more than 40 wounded in a drone strike on something called Tower 22, which is apparently a US military base in Jordan, up by Jordan's border with Syria. The drone seems to have come from Ib Hezbollah, which, as I am sure you know, is an Iraqi Shiite paramilitary group financed by Iran. I was being facetious there. You have, of course, never heard of Kata'ib Hezbollah before, any more than I have. Why should we have heard of them? The Middle East is infested with these bandit gangs of crazy Muslims. Why is it any of our business? We don't need their oil, or at any rate we didn't when Donald Trump was president and we were self-sufficient. Let these savages slaughter each other. Why should we care? Apparently we do care. We care a lot. According to this map I'm looking at from the Washington Post, we have 3,000 service people in Jordan. We also have 2,000 in Syria, 6,000 in Iraq... 3,000 in Saudi Arabia, 13,000 each in Kuwait and Qatar, 7,000 in Bahrain, 5,000 in the UAE, and 600 in Oman. Oh, and 2,500 in Turkey. That's a total 55,000. Almost a week's worth of illegals crossing our southern border at the December rate. Is our nation so settled, stable, harmonious, and secure we can send tens of thousands of our military abroad to get mixed up in the tribal squabbles of barbarians? Do we have so few problems here at home we can help shoulder the problems afflicting Jordan, Syria, and Kuwait? Is there so little here to engage our attention? We need to know who the hell are Kata'ib Hezbollah? My answers are no, no and no. Close and seal the borders. Establish a strict but fair immigration regime for foreigners wishing to settle here. Bring home our troops from Europe, Asia and the Middle East pull out of NATO and the U.N. Let foreign nations go to hell any way they choose while making sure our own territory is stoutly, formidably defended. Drill for oil and gas, then drill some more. America first by a long mile. Back in 2009, I published a book with the title We Are Doomed, subtitle Reclaiming Conservative Pessimism. Prior to the book's publication, The Economist magazine asked me to do an online interview about it with them. So I did. The interview is preserved at The Economist website. One of the questions was... Give me some examples of how conservative pessimism might translate into policy. I rattled off a whole list. Quote, Abandonment of, inner quote, nation-building, inner quote, exercises. Abolition of the Federal Department of Education. A 1924-style immigration freeze repeal of No Child Left Behind, end of all federal subsidies to, inner quote, community groups, end in a quote, end of all federal subsidies to arts and culture, end of all foreign aid programs that are not plainly and obviously bribes for pro-American behavior. Restart construction of neutron bombs. Full-bore federal subsidised research on missile defence. Withdrawal from the UN, followed by raising of all UN structures on American soil and sowing the ground with salt. How many do you want? End quote. That interview generated a comment thread which you can inspect at archive.org and many emails. To my surprise, my negativity towards the United Nations caused considerable outrage. How could I be so reactionary, so heartless, as to want us out of the UN? even allowing for the fact that The Economist is a globalist publication, I thought the outrage was out of proportion. It's been plain to me for most of my adult life that the United Nations is a corrupt racket. Look at the four nations with whom we share the distinction of being permanent members of the UN Security Council. China, Russia, Britain and France. That's two lawless Asiatic despotisms, and two, has-been ex-imperial powers rapidly turning themselves into Afro-Islamic slums. Or look at the General Assembly, a parking lot for the more troublesome nephews of third-world dictators, and for C-list first-world politicians like Nikki Haley, with enough popularity to need appeasing but judged useless for any important job. UN peacekeepers are notoriously the worst thing that can happen to a nation. Following the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, their main contribution to the relief effort was, quote from a Boston University report, the sexual abuse and exploitation of women and children, end quote. So columnie not at all surprised at this week's news that UNRWA, that's the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East, UNRWA is up to its elbows helping Arab terrorists trying to destroy Israel, which is a member nation of the UN. Why is there a separate UN agency? funded, of course, by your tax dollars and mine, why is there a separate agency for Palestinian refugees? Why doesn't the UN High Commissioner for Refugees deal with them? Why, in any case, are there still Palestinian refugees, 76 years after they lost their homes in Israel? Even on the worst possible view of that dispossession, leaving aside, for example, the fact that a lot of the Israelis doing the dispossession had been kicked out of their own homes in Arab countries, Iran and Europe. Leaving that aside, it was a long time ago. World War Two in Europe generated plenty of refugees. Germans and East Europeans fleeing the advancing Russians, for instance. How come they aren't still refugees, under UN care, 76 years later. They settled where they could and got on with rebuilding their lives. Ah, yes, a Palestinian might say, but we can reclaim our homeland. With the help of our Arab brothers, we shall drive the Jews out from the river to the sea. No, you won't. If it looks as though you're about to, Israel will exercise the Samson option and fry you and your Arab brothers with nukes. Perhaps us too. Are you just going to live forever in fantasies of revenge, feeding on the charity of foreigners? Get on with your lives, as refugees elsewhere have done for centuries past, including... Plenty of Jewish refugees. And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. I once opined, and I shall now, with all proper respect to Steve Forbes, Arthur Laffer, and Steve Moore, I shall repeat that it's not economics that should rightly be called. The dismal science. It's demography. Within demography, the demography of China is particularly dismal. Emma Waters of the Heritage Foundation just confirmed that for me with a good thread on X. In my childhood, adults spoke of China as a country just bursting with people. Everyone knew the marching Chinese story. If you got them all marching steadily past a wooden marker, the march would never end, because in the time it took today's huge population to pass the marker, an even huger population would have been born and grown up. The sci-fi writer Cyril Cornbluth borrowed that idea for a story called The Marching Morons. In fact, the birth rate was declining in the 1950s and it fell catastrophically at the end of that decade because of Mao Zedong's Great Famine, 1959-62. It quickly picked up after the famine to the degree that the communist government got worried about overpopulation. So in 1979 they imposed the One Child Policy. That worked a bit too well, so in the middle of the last decade they raised the limit to two children per family. And then in 2021 they dropped limits altogether. Pretty soon, as Emma Waters describes, China was tangled in all the paradoxes and dead ends of population policy. Basically Nothing much works. Sample quote. Artificial measures to conceive children, such as IVF or surrogate motherhood, is not a reliable course of action to overcome low fertility rates. In many cases, such technology seems to encourage the very individualistic attitude that countries are trying to overcome. End quote. To this day, in fact, I don't think anyone knows any method for increasing fertility on a national scale. The only thing we know that increases it on any scale is intense religiosity. But how do you implement that on a national scale? So China, like the rest of us, is going to have to make her way as best she can in a future world Teeming with Amish, Orthodox Jews, and Muslim fundamentalists. Unless, as one of Emma's commenters surmises, unless they resort to Brave New World style hatcheries. Which, knowing China, and I do know China, would not surprise me. Item. At the other end of the human life cycle, here in Thursday's Daily Mail, is a story about the death penalty in China. They have it, and they use it. A lot. The Penal Code has 46 capital crimes, 24 violent crimes and 22 non-violent ones. The annual number of executions is not known, but it's thought to be in the thousands, more than any other country. Lethal injection and firing squad are both used. An interesting wrinkle is execution vans. If you've been sentenced to die by lethal injection, the authorities send a van round to wherever you're being held They lie you down on a bed in the back of the van and they give you the shot there. Quote, The vans are said to be a key part of China's organ trade, with a 2012 estimate suggesting 65% of donated organs come from executed people. So many prisoners are executed in the vans, reports suggest, to meet the high demand for organs, end quote. Viewers of that Netflix series, Squid Game, will know where they are here. I said last week, commenting on the execution of Kenneth Smith in Alabama, I said that I favour capital punishment. Reading this Daily Mail story, I almost had second thoughts. Almost. Item. We know the military is having trouble recruiting. The reasons aren't hard to figure. Reason 1. Our 21st century wars have all been futile, pointless fiascos that no American can regard with any pride. Reason 2. Our last big prolonged war in the 20th century, the one in Southeast Asia, ended with our defeat. Reason three what was traditionally the biggest recruiting pool for our military, working class white men, especially in the South, no longer wants to fight for a nation whose ruling class regards them with contempt as. Supremacist deplorables loaded with toxic masculinity. And reason four, too many of the youngsters who do show up at recruiting stations are too fat, dumb or criminal to serve. The only solution is to lower standards for recruits. That's what we're doing. New York Post, January 28th. Headline, Navy, again, lowers requirements as it struggles to meet recruitment goals. Note that word, again. The way it has been is that if you showed up at a Navy recruiting office, you had to have an education credential, that is a high school graduation or a GED, to get in through the door then you had to take the afqt that's the armed services uh, sorry armed forces qualification test and get a passing score the afqt is scored from 0 to 99 in december 2022 the navy lowered the afqt bar from 31 to 10 for high school graduates Now they have dropped the high school graduation qualification altogether for recruits who score higher than 50. There has been a lot of tasteless jokes, I've made one or two myself, about the Federal Aviation Administration lowering standards for pilots and air traffic controllers. Don't be surprised, say the jokesters, if the plane you're sitting in unexpectedly meets another one. In the air or on the runway. In the same spirit, I think we should warn users of recreational sea craft that if you see a US Navy capital ship anywhere near you, get the hell out of its way. That's all, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, as always, for your time and attention, and for your emails, gifts and contributions. Kind listeners email in to ask how my broken ankle is progressing. The answer is pretty well, as best I can judge. I'll be seeing the orthopaedic surgeon next week for a professional judgment, but I'm moving around much better and I have no pain. These last few days, in fact, I've mainly been moving around with just one crutch. I'm quite used to that now. It's like having an extra leg. How do I know what it's like to have an extra leg? By being a Rolf Harris fan, that's how. Rolf Harris was a great Australian entertainer. Born in 1930, Florowitt... 1960s and 1970s, especially on British TV. He died last year at age 93. Rolf really was a great natural entertainer who made major additions to the public stock of harmless pleasure. He was himself perfectly harmless, so far as I can judge. However, in the 2010s, When he was in his 80s, he got swept up in the sexual harassment hysteria driven by crooked, gold-digging lawyers, and he did jail time for having been a bit handsy with young women. His reputation was ruined. I earnestly pray that the people who ruined it will all burn in hell. There will be more from Radio Derb next week.
1: I'm Jake the Peg little um, with my extra leg did little. Wherever I go through rain and snow The people always let me know There's Jake the pig deedle, 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 um, With his extra leg deedle, deedle, deedle. The day that I was born, oh boy, my father nearly died He couldn't get my nappies on no matter how he tried <laughs> Cos I was born with an extra leg And since that day begun I had to learn to stand on my own three feet Believe me, that's no fun I'm Jake the Peg With my extra leg lead, 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 Wherever I go through rain and snow The people always let me know There's Jake The big With his extra leg I had a dreadful childhood really I suppose I shouldn't moan Each time they had a three-legged race I won it on me own (laughs) And also I got popular When came the time for cricket They used to roll my trousers up and use me for the wickets.
0: <laughs> I'm
1: Jake, the big deedle deedle deedle. Um, with my extra leg deedle deedle deedle. Um. Wherever I go through rain and snow, the people always let me know. There's Jake, the big deedle deedle deedle. Um, with the extra leg deedle. I was a dreadful scholar I found all the lessons hard The only thing I knew for sure Was three feet make a yard <laughs> To count to ten I used me fingers If I needed more By getting my shoes and socks off I could count to Twenty-four <laughs> I'm Jake The Good. One, two, three, four, five Seven, eight, nine, ten Elephant 19, 20, 21 to 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. 25. <laughs> I'm Jake <laughs> the Big Diddle Diddlem diddle. <laughs> with my extra leg did. Whatever I did they said was false they said quick march i did the quick waltz <laughs> then they shouted at me put your best foot forward but which foot <laughs> i said it's very fine for you you only got a choice of two but me i'm Jake the big little little with the extra leg. <laughs> diddle diddle